On February 29th, 1948, a pastor by the name of Richard Wormbrand was kidnapped while he was walking home on the streets of communist Russia. After his kidnapping, he would disappear for more than 14 years, taken from his wife, taken from his, his child, and taken from his church. And during that time, he would endure horrific torture for his refusal to renounce Christ. See, he spent much of his time imprisonment in solitary confinement, the first three years um, of his imprisonment. And since he had no one to talk to, he spent the majority of his time talking to the Lord in prayer. But you see, that was a problem because in this prison, this communist prison, you were not allowed to pray to God. If you prayed to God, you'd be beaten for it. And Richard knew that. He knew he'd be violating um, the, the laws that they had put in place. And yet day by day, he continued to pray. And day by day, he continued to be beaten. One day, a, a guard was doing the regular checkup on Wormbrand. And he peered into his cell and saw that, as usual, Richard was down on his knees praying to God. And the guard, filled with frustration and anger as to why this man continued to call out to God, came in and, and yelled at Richard, saying, Praying? You fool! Do you not know that your wife is in prison? Your son is an orphan? Your life is gone, and yet you still pray to your imaginary God. What could you possibly have left to pray for? And at that moment, Richard looked up at him where he still had blood, dried blood running down his face from the last beating. And with a smile on his face, he looked at the guard and said, I was praying for you. I was praying for you. See, after all of these things, these, these men had done to him and his family, somehow Richard was still able to love his enemies and pray for those who persecuted him. Now, why, why did Richard do this? Why would anybody do this? Well, the reason is, is because this is exactly what Jesus calls us to do. See, in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to give what I think is probably one of the most difficult passages, teachings in all of the Bible. And that is the teaching to love your enemies. And the reason I think it's so difficult is because this is this is not something that is natural to humankind. If someone hates you, if someone abuses you or mistreats you, chances are your natural response is not love and blessing towards that person, but anger. And maybe even a desire to get even, or maybe uh, it's hatred in your heart for them. And yet, as we'll see, Jesus calls us to deny that natural response. That's really what the, the Christian life uh, composes of, to denying that thing that is natural, to deny the natural, old, sinful man that loves sin and to embrace a new way of life that he's called us to. And so you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, and we'll look at what Jesus has to say on this topic for us. Luke chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 
27 to 36. Hear God's word this morning. But I say to you, who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not withhold them, or do, or do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even, for even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Now as I said, this here is a, is a challenging passage. If you weren't challenged in one way or another as I was reading through that, either you probably weren't listening or you don't actually understand what it is that Jesus is requiring of you in this passage. This, this passage should convict us. Now, if you were convicted by Jesus' words as I read that, that's a good thing. That's what it's, it's meant to do. That's the, the Spirit working in our lives. But your conviction is only good if your response to that conviction is the proper response. See, when we're convicted, there's really two responses that can come from that. First, we could respond in discouragement. You know, I think of the rich young ruler. Jesus tells him, go and sell everything you have. And he understands what that means. And he's, he's convicted by that. And yet, instead of obeying Jesus, listening to that conviction, he leaves sad and discouraged because he's not willing to give up that idol in his life. So that's that's the, the first and, and improper response, to be discouraged at what it is God calls us to do. It's the second response that we're after, and that is one of repentance. See, when we are convicted, we, we see our failings, we see our sin, but we don't become discouraged. Instead, we run to the cross. We, we, we mourn and we confess our sins to our God and we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us and then we cry out to God to strengthen us to change our ways and to walk in our sin no more and so that's my my hope for you guys this morning that there would be repentance in light of this convicting passage see as we walk through ask yourself does this passage really define me and how I live, or not at all? Does my life look nothing like this? And if 
If you are in sin, if your life doesn't look anything like this, in what ways do you need to repent? And in what specific ways can the power of the Spirit work in you to start implementing these teachings of Jesus today? So I want you to be thinking through that as we go through. And now we'll, we'll get into our passage. So the sermon this morning really has only two points to it. We're going to look at the commands themselves that Jesus gives. And then after that, we're going to look at the rationale or, or the reasons for keeping these commands. And very quickly, last week I kind of highlighted some interpretive notes for, for understanding the, the Beatitudes. I have, I have one quick one before we get into this passage. There's times when the Bible uses something called hyperbole. You know, for example, Jesus will say things like this. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. That's what Jesus tells us. Now, all of us here have sinned with our eyes. All of us probably will sin in the future with our eyes. And yet I see that all of us here still have both of our eyes not plucked out. And so does that mean all of us here are being disobedient to what Jesus commands of us? He does say, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. Well, we're not being disobedient if we actually understand the, the topic of hyperbole. Jesus is exaggerating something to make his point. He's saying, you need to take drastic measures. You know, it's, it's better to, to take these drastic measures to prevent you from falling into sin than to end up in hell. And so, uh, I think we, we need to understand that there is hyperbole used in the Bible. And, and, and now, what we don't want to do on the other side is say every passage is hyperbole. Jesus didn't actually mean that um, to, to try and lessen the, the demands that he puts on us. But we do need to understand that it does appear in the Bible. And I think it appears a little bit uh, in this passage. And so with that, let's, let's get into what Jesus is saying. Let's start by looking at the first command that he did. And this is really the, the main command of this passage. Essentially, Jesus says in, in verse 27, to love your enemies... To love your enemies. And the rest of the commands that he gives are going to be an explanation of that main command. At the end of the passage, he's going to broaden the scope a little bit with some of his commands. But mostly he, he focuses on specific ways we're called to love our enemies. And notice Jesus doesn't say, don't hate your enemies. But he actually gives a positive command here. And we're, not, we're not just to be neutral towards our enemies, but we're to actually love them. We're to actually, in the positive, extend love to them. Now, I know from my own experience in life that I've had, I've had enemies who have had issues with me. I've disagreed with them. They've opposed me. They've mistreated me. They've actually maybe even hated me. And the struggle, the, 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 the difficulty I had with that was, was not extending those same things back to them. You know, to, 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 to not hate them, but also to, to love them, which is even harder to do. I remember over the course of, of COVID, I think my biggest challenge in all of COVID was to, to keep the, this command that Jesus has given us here. You know, to, to love my enemies. And, and when I saw people um, who were throwing 
you know, pastors in prison or changing the locks on doors when I, when I had people in our own congregation calling the police uh, on our church for remaining open, when I had friends who uh, lost their jobs because they weren't vaccinated and they were working from home. It was, it was really hard to, to love and extend love to these people who are clearly enemies of uh, what God is doing. Now, what these people did was, was wrong and sinful. And, and I think an inner sense of, of us wants to say, that's wrong and that's why I don't love them and that's why I don't hate them. And that's why I hate them. But you see, the Lord has commanded us to, to love our enemies. And now what exactly does that look like? Does that look like letting people get away with evil? Does that look like um, turning a blind eye and, 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 and not saying that there's, there's no sense of justice anymore on this earth? What does it actually look like to, to love our enemies? And Jesus is going to help us walk through this by giving us a few examples uh, where this is lived out. And so first, to love our enemies, very simply, is to do good to them. Look again at verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. See, loving our enemies involves doing good to our enemies. In, in other words, love is not just a, a, a feeling that you have towards your enemies. Love is an action. It involves doing good to those who do evil to you. Romans 12 describes it in this way. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. To drink, For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. So we see to, to love our enemy is to do good to them. I can't say that I, I love my wife, but then never do anything good to her. You know, how, how, how can I, part, part of loving her is, is doing good to and for her. If I'm not doing any of that, how can I say that I, I love her? And it's the same with our enemies. Recently, a, a friend of mine was telling me, he's, he's got this one neighbor who, who just absolutely hates his guts for, for really no reason. His neighbor curses at him. He, he, he'll steal his mail. Um, he told me actually, recently he cut two of his telephone lines. He just, th- this neighbor is very clearly uh, my friend's enemy. And as he was, he was telling me this, I was kind of thinking through this passage. And I was wondering, what would, what would doing good to an enemy look like here? How could we live out Jesus' teaching in, in a situation like that? What came to mind is, is what Jesus says, to go and do good to them. You know, little, little acts of, of goodness and kindness, showing them respect even when they don't respect you. Trying to take a, a genuine interest in them. Maybe sharing with them the vegetables from your garden or, or making them a, a batch of cookies or getting your children to, to write a birthday card or a Christmas card or an Easter card and and dropping it off at their house or helping them you know, shovel the driveway when, when winter comes. You know, the, the, Jesus tells us to, to go and actually do good to our enemies. And, and a wonderful thing about this is that your, your response of, of kindness may actually 
you know, work your way down to their heart and change their heart by, by bringing shame upon them for the way that they treat you. We all know what this is like. If, if you get in an argument with your spouse and you maybe say something mean or insulting that you shouldn't have said, you know, if, you're, if your spouse responds in, in kindness to you, you're not getting angry at you, maybe apologizing for a misunderstanding or something like that, if they respond in kindness, you know, you're far more likely to recognize your sin and, and repent of it to them and ask for forgiveness. And so we do good to our enemies. It can, that's what heaping burning coals on their heads means. It, it means you work your way down to their, to their heart and you soften their heart by, by, by responding to evil with kindness. So that's the first way that, that we here need to be loving our enemies. You need to start doing good to them. Next, to love our enemies is to bless and pray for them. Look at verse 28. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Now you might be thinking to yourself, oh yeah, I'll, I'll pray for them all right. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for them. I got a good prayer for them. How about Psalm 109? May his days be few and may another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seek food far from the ruins they inhabit. Now, without getting into too much detail, I, I, th- I do think there are times when these prayers might be appropriate. And I know I'm opening, opening up a big can of worms by saying that. But these, these, are, these are laments and, and moanings to the Lord that especially David is is saying they're they're an expression of faith and trust in in the protective hand of of God's justice on this earth. But it's not the type of prayer that Jesus is getting at here. When he's saying that, he's he's not saying these type of of prayers um, towards our enemies. He's he's talking about when we are when we are tempted to hate our enemy, what we need to do instead of hating them is is fall down and humbly pray before the Lord for them. You know, someone someone once told me, and I and I, I think of this every time, I'm tempted to to be uh, un unrighteously angry at someone. He said it's hard to to hate someone and pray for them, good at the same time. It's hard to hate someone and pray for their good, at the same time. So I think that's that's helpful for us when we are tempted to do this. I think that's why Jesus says that. And so you might be asking what. We don't pray Psalm 109 for our enemies, at least in this context. So then what do we pray for our enemies? I think first and foremost, we, we pray that they would recognize their sin and that they would repent and turn from their sin. And Jesus, he's an example of this. You know, as they were falsely accusing him, as, as he was being beaten and as he was thrown up on the cross being mocked, um, for for being the Son of God, what does he say about those who are walking by? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so we also pray that for our enemies. You know, if if if, if it's a if it's a believer, that we pray that um, there would be a, a conviction by the the Spirit to to return them back to right living according to God's word. And if it's an unbeliever, 
We pray that, that they would convert to know Christ and that he would change their hearts. And, and he is able to do that. I mean, he took Saul and he made him a, a child of God and used him wonderfully for the Lord. So we pray, we, we call out to the Lord for their conversion. Second, we pray for an end to their evil. We, we pray that the Lord would, would end the, the wrong things that they're committing. See, one of the most loving prayers that we can pray for both the one experiencing the evil and the one perpetuating it is this. Lord God, put an end. Put an end to their evil deeds. Lord, establish your righteousness and justice here. Jesus is the one who teaches us to pray this way. He says in the Lord's Prayer that we are to pray, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it is the will of the Lord that justice and righteousness may abound and that evil would be restrained. That's what he's calling us to pray for when he says that. And so as an example, some people think that that it's not loving to your enemy to pray that the government would, would catch and punish criminals. Or it's not loving for a, a victim of abuse to, to pray for their abuser to get caught and suffer the consequences. But that's just not true. We pray for, for God's divine intervention, for his will and justice to be established on the earth. And that is loving our enemy. That is an act of love for evil to not be ruling and reigning anymore. And then thirdly, uh, we pray for ourselves. You, you, you confess to, to the Lord that you are struggling with loving your enemy. And then you ask God to soften your heart towards them. You ask for him to, to give you a spirit of endurance and to do good in the face of evil and to be delivered from your suffering. Again, in the Lord's Prayer, Je- Jesus teaches us, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think you know, there are a few of us here, my, myself included, that, that need to pray this more. You know, we have to be careful um, that we are not falling into sin ourselves uh, when, we are, when we are opposed by, by enemies. And so we ask the Lord uh, to protect us uh, from others and from, from our own sin. And so I encourage you, if, if you have enemies in your life, take time. To pray for them. As you're, as you're driving home, pray for them. When you're tempted to hate them, instead of mustering or brewing in that hatred and those thoughts, bow your head to the Lord and pray these things to him. Moving on, we see that to love our enemies is, is not to, so first it was loving our enemies is doing good. Loving our enemies is, is praying and blessing them. And then next, loving our enemies is to not retaliate but to show compassion. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. To one one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not hold your tunic either. See, Jesus' point with both of these examples is instead of responding to opposition with retaliation, the call for us is to respond with compassion. The first example is of someone who comes up and slaps you on the cheek. Now in that time, someone doing that was, was a personal insult to you. It wasn't the case of someone assaulting you. This, this passage isn't, doesn't apply to, to self-defense or if someone is hurting you and harming you, you don't just have to stand there and continue to take it. Rather, 
It's about how we, we are to respond when, when people insult us, when, when people do, do wrong uh, to us in that way. And, and Jesus is saying we don't respond by shooting back. We don't respond by trading blow for blow. We don't retaliate and seek personal vengeance. Instead, he says, what you're called to do is you absorb the blow. You absorb the insult. You're, 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 you're not going to go out and, and, and find a way where you can get that opportunity to get them back. You know, Peter says in, in his um, epistle, and he's writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Some of your Bibles might say insulting for insulting. But on the contrary, bless. That's what we're called to do, bless. And so, you've probably heard the saying, take the higher road. That's what Jesus is calling us to do here. We're called to take the higher road. And the higher road is hard. You know, it, it's, it's a hard one to walk. It goes against what is natural to us. All you have to do is, is watch your children interacting with each other. And you see one kid hit or push or grab a toy, almost immediately, what does the other child do? The exact same thing. Hits, grabs, and pushes. And you don't even have to look. If you don't have kids, all you have to do is, is go down to the Smith's Falls Arena on, on Beer League night. And you'll see when one guy slashes another, almost for certain, the other guy's going to slash him back. And actually, it's not even the Beer League. You can go to some of the, uh, the Dutch Reformed Leagues, and you'll see that uh, as well. You see, it's, 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 it's natural for us to want to retaliate, but Jesus calls us against that. And, and even, you know, disregard applying this to our enemies for, for just a second. Imagine if we applied this principle to any relationship in our life. You know, spouses, coworkers, siblings, your children, your neighbors. When they insult you or, or make a passive-aggressive or snarky comment or show you some attitude... If you, if you don't fire back, if you don't hold it against them, you absorb the blow and you respond in kindness. There's, there's going to be a great change um, in your life. And you're going you're gonna to soften the hearts of, of those that you're around. And that's, why, why Jesus, that's, that's where Jesus' second example comes in. You know, responding in kindness. And in verse 29, he, he says, if they, if they take your coat, do not withhold your tunic either. Now, what he's, what he's not saying is, is if you're getting you know, robbed on the street and someone comes and, and it's like, give me your wallet. You give them your wallet and then they, they run away. You don't stand up and say, hey, hold on a second. You forgot my new iPhone that I just got and you forgot to take that. That's, that's not what Jesus is, is, is saying. What he's saying is, is that it's better for you to, to show more compassion and even give up your tunic if required than to go and, you know, steal back their coat or, or try to, to make it right. And so there you have it. And that's what it, what it means to love your enemy. That's what that, that hard command means. To do good to them, to pray for them, and not to return evil for evil, but to return with compassion. And so now that we've gone through that, I want you to evaluate yourself. I imagine here uh, you've got enemies. And now an enemy doesn't mean someone who's just seeking to take your life or beat you up. An enemy is anyone who is, who is opposed to you, who is opposed to, to God. You, know, do, you, you, you probably do have enemies 
in your life? And does what Jesus said here, does this describe your behavior towards them? Does, does this describe your attitude towards them? Or does there, does there need to be repentance before the Lord and a change in your life? So it's at this point in our passage that Jesus, he's been talking about loving our enemies, and now he's going to broaden um, the, the, what, what he's talking about here. He's on the same thread of, of how we interact with others, but now he's saying this is not just how we conduct ourselves with enemies. This is how we conduct ourselves with all people. And look at verses 30 to 31. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. See, no matter which way you slice this command from Jesus, it's a very, very radical, challenging command. Jesus says, give to everyone who begs from you. Give to everyone who begs from you. Some of your translations might say, give to everyone who asks from you. Now you might be thinking to yourself, did Jesus actually mean everyone? I mean, for example, I was at the Independent the other day and I was, uh, I was checking out and I was asked, do I want to donate uh, $2 to, to some sort of charity that they were raising money for? And if I don't give to them, am I in violation of this command? Or, or here's another example for you. Let's say my child uh, asked me for an iPad and uh, I say to them, I, I don't think so. I don't think you're ready for an iPad. Can they quote to me this verse and say, Jesus says that you should give to everyone who begs from you. And I'm begging you for an iPad. So hand it over, pal. Well, if we read this, this verse in its strict, literal interpretation, then I think all, in all of these examples, yeah, you should be giving to those who ask. If, if, if that's how we're going to read it, Jesus doesn't give any qualifiers. Give to those who who beg from you. But I think if we interpret it properly, you know, recognizing that there is a level of hyperbole here and that we, we apply it consistently with the rest of what the Bible has to say, then we rightly understand that, that there are some qualifiers that God puts on this statement. Give to everyone who asks. For example, you know, we, don't, we don't give to someone if, if our giving is going to enable them to sin. Someone comes to me and, and asks me for money and I'm pretty certain that that money is, is, is going to go for them to shoot up drugs. Then I'm not going to give that money to them. I might try to help them in another way. I'm not going to give that money to them. Or if a, if a charity comes along, a charity comes along that's raising money for reproductive rights, then I'm obviously not going to give to them. It's, it's, it's not loving to any person to enable their sin, to, to, to lead them more and more under the wrath of God. And so I think that's a qualifier that the Bible puts on there. A second qualifier is that this command, the intention of this command is to be giving to those who are, are actually in need. And, and we see this in, in 1 Timothy. There's a, there's a number of widows in the church in Ephesus and uh, the church is, is financially helping, supporting some of these widows who have lost their husbands. But Paul writes to Timothy and he specifically tells Timothy 
to only put widows on the list to receive money if they're actually in need. If they're actually in need. See, there, there were some widows who were collecting money from the church who still had a family that could take care of them. And so they, they, didn't, they didn't need to be relying on the church. And another verse that, that supports this is um, of giving to those who, who actually have a need is 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10 to 12. It says this, If anyone is, is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now notice Paul there says, if someone is able to work, but they're choosing not to, they're unwilling to, then they shouldn't eat. That's another hard command of the Bible. Now, if you're, if you're unable to work because of you know, things that may have happened in your life or, or whatever circumstance it is, that, that's different than being unwilling to work. But, but much of what we see today, you know, with, even with the welfare system in, in Canada, is that you know, many people can work, they, they just don't want to. You know, and, 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 and what that does... If we think that's giving to the needy, what that, what that does is it really robs the needy, the ones who actually need the money, uh, from getting that money. We're doing, we're doing no good to anyone uh, to be um, giving away money when there's not actually a need there. And so I think that's a, a qualifier that Jesus puts on it. We are, we are to give when there's actual needs uh, that are to be, to be met. And then a third qualifier uh, is that it says to give to everyone who asks, but not necessarily whatever they asked. If we took this to its literal conclusion and someone asked you for a million dollars, you'd have to give them a million dollars if that's what it actually meant. Um, but it's saying give to everyone who asks, but not necessarily whatever they ask. Let's say you come across a homeless man and, and he asks you for money. Are you required to give money? Or can you give him something else like food or or, or or give him an opportunity to come and work. You know, I've, I've talked to a homeless person and said, hey, I have, I have work that can be done. If, if you're willing to come and, and, and work, I'll, I'll pay you for that. And so we don't necessarily have to give whatever it is um, they want to be obedient to this command. The point here is that when someone is in need and someone asks, that you need to be a person who's willing and ready to help them. You don't shoo them off. You don't just ignore them. Um, you, you exercise your godly wisdom. Um, James 5 asks us for, for this type of wisdom when we're conflicted about things uh, to how, we can, how, you, how you can best love and serve them. Now, so, so those are some of the qualifiers to this, but, but what I don't want, I, kinda, I have to give the qualifiers, but I, I don't love to because then sometimes what we can get caught up in is, is the exceptions of this and we actually miss what Jesus is emphasizing here. And what he's emphasizing is that Christians ought to be extremely generous. We ought to be extremely generous, always giving to those who are genuinely in need and doing, and, and doing so without any sort of benefit for ourselves. You know, we don't say, uh, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll give to him because I know he's going he's gonna, to you know, help me out later. You know, the, kind of the, the term, you owe me one, we kind of throw it around 
as a joke most times, but it's not really like a, a biblical um, principle that you know you're you're holding something over when you when you give uh, to someone, and it's a hard command, and it's because we like to hold our money tight. We like to hold it tight. Deuteronomy 15, when he tells tells him in the law about um, giving money to the poor, he's talking about um, the year of release, and he's and he says, don't be don't be closed-fisted with your money. But if someone asks from you, give to them. Uh, and that's what we are called to do, to be ready and willing to give to those in need. And now as, as the last command to summarize all that, that Jesus has said thus far, there's one final principle to rule all other principles. And that is the golden rule. It says, as you wish what others would do to you, do so to them. As you wish what others would do to you, do so to them. And this is the principle that should guide us before every action that we take. It's, it's, it's quite a simple and it's probably a very familiar principle to you, but it's a very powerful simple, perhaps because of its simplicity. If you're going to do something or say something that you wouldn't want done or said to you, then don't do it. It's that simple. And imagine how, how different all of our relationships would be with each other if we, if we let this be the driving force behind our behavior. And so there you have it. I, I told you this was a challenging and convicting passage, and now you know why. This is, what, this is what Jesus requires of you. If you call yourself a Christian, if you want to live a life that is honoring and glorifying to God, what we talked about is what he's calling you to do. And so at this point, I know... I had some thoughts. Uh, you might have some thoughts going through your mind. And there's, there's kind of two main ones that came to my mind with these countercultural radical uh, demands and commands that Jesus puts on us. The first one is, why? Why is Jesus requiring such a difficult task for me? Does, doesn't Jesus love me? And now he's telling me to go and do all of these really difficult things. And then second... You might be thinking, can anybody do this? I mean, I, 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 possi- I, I can't possibly do what Jesus has asked of me here. And this leads to our final, final part of the sermon. The reasons why Jesus calls us to live this way and how in the world we can possibly keep them. And so the first reason is that living this way separates us from how the world lives. Look at verses 32. And 33. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even others love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who you expect to receive, what is that to you? Sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus saying here that living in a way in which you're kind only to those who are kind to you or when you respond when, when someone does evil to you, you respond back with evil or if you give to others when it's only a benefit to you there, there's nothing meritorious or or good about living that way because that's how everybody lives you know hitler and stalin you know love those who who love them were were kind to those who were kind to them and never challenged them but true Christian love is a, is a love that is different than the world's love. 
know, it's, it's, it's extended to everyone regardless of whether they deserve it or whether they're our friend or whether it's going to benefit you. We love and we give not because we're going to receive anything, but because it's what we're called to do. And that's something that, that separates God's holy people. That's what makes us a, a holy nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood before God, because we love in a way that is different than the rest of the world. Now, second reason that we, we live and we love this way is because though there's no reward on earth, there will be uh, a heavenly reward. You know, look at verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. Your reward will be great. See, there is a reward that is waiting for all of us who are willing to obey these commands of Jesus. Chances are that if you're living in this this way, there's going to be little to no earthly reward for you. You you might love your enemy and they're still going to hate your guts. You might not retaliate and it might not make them kind to you. It might make them more angry at you or hate you even more. You might freely give to someone and they go off and squander the money on useless stuff. But take heart, Jesus says, because there is a, a, a great, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how they respond. There is a the, the reward that you are working for is a greater reward that God will give you for your obedience. Others might not recognize what you're doing or see your kindness, but you know who does recognize? And you know who is watching? God. God is watching. That's right. And he is proud when his children obey him. And he delights in your, your long-suffering, your, your sacrifice, and your devotion to him. And he is, he is going to greatly reward you on that day when you enter into the promised city. And so let that motivate you to continue to press on in this way. And then finally, the last reason for living this way is it makes us like God. It makes us like God. Look at the end of verse 35 and 36. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. See, when we love this way, we become like our Father. That's what Jesus is getting at when he says, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will be like the Most High God. You will be like his children because this is how God our Father himself acts. See, God is, 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 is calling us to do something that he himself does. It says here, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And he, and he is so in a far greater way than we are. I mean, think on this for a second. Every single human being rebels against God every single day. And to most people, they don't care that they did. You know, it's not a, it's not a big deal. They'll, they, they won't lose any sleep at night about it. They know what sin is. God has written his law on their hearts, but they don't care. They spit in the face of the God who created them. created them, And God, he has every right, every right to destroy in each and every one of us, sending us immediately to hell for all eternity every single time we sin. And yet, how does, how does God respond to our rebellion? The Bible says he is, he is patient 
with us. He gives us, he gives us when we don't deserve. He gives us breath and life. He gives us our, our senses to, to touch and to feel and to experience the, the good things in this world. He, he gives us family and, and food and meets our daily needs. And we don't deserve any of it. But God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil because that is the kind of God who he is. Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There's a reason that verse is seen all throughout the Bible because that, is, that, that defines our God. And so we should, be all, we should all be thankful here that God loves his enemies. Because if, if you sit here today and you're a Christian, a child of God, it is because of the mercy of God upon his enemies. The Bible says that we were once enemies of God. But then it says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in rebellion against God, Christ died for us, for all of us who will call upon his name. And so why should you love your enemies this morning? Well, because God loved you, his enemy. And every time we forgive, every time we repay good, uh, every time we repay evil with good, every time we, we give of ourselves to those in need, we become exactly like the Lord Jesus who gave himself for our need and who gave himself for his enemies. And we also become a testament, a living testament to the mercy of God to us that, sh- that was shown for us on that cross. And so I know it's hard to love your enemies, but Jesus shows us that it can be done. And not only that, he helps us. He helps us to do it. He's given us his, his spirit as a, as a, as a uh, gift to us that we can live in a way that is not natural, the way that we naturally want to live, but to live supernaturally. I mean, think of the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Everything that we need to love our enemies is given to us in those fruits of the Spirit. We can, we can do this by the power of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. And as an example of that, I, w- I want to leave you with one quick story of encouragement. I'm not sure if any of you have ever heard of a man named Gary Ridgway. Gary Ridgway is one of the most famous uh, serial killers of all time. Uh, he's, he's admitted to killing 71 uh, young women, uh, and, and he was just a, a brutal, merciless man. And his trial uh, was a very sad thing to witness. I, I saw some videos of it on, on YouTube, and it was particularly sad because he seemed to show absolutely no remorse for the evils that he had done. When asked about the women that he had killed, he would sit there and answer emotionless. You know, sometimes he said, to be honest, I don't even remember that girl that you're talking about. She was, she was so insignificant to me. And at the, the end of the trial, the families of the victims were given a chance to, to stand up and to say something to Ridgeway. And many of them, I think understandably so, cursed the man for what he had done. One mother said to him, You are an animal, and I wish for you to have a long suffering, cruel death for what you did to all of these innocent 
girls. And just as Ridgway had sat throughout the whole trial, as he sat listening to these people um, say these things to him, he continued to sit there emotionless, showing no regret or remorse for what he'd done. But then one man came up. It was his turn to speak. He was the father of, of one of the girls who had been murdered by Ridgeway. And as he's speaking, you can hear he has a hard time saying what he's saying. He's, 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 he's choking over his, his words. He's holding back the tears. But this is what he said to Mr. Ridgeway, to, to, to um, his daughter's murderer. He said, Mr. Ridgeway, there are a lot of people here today who hate you for what you've done. But I am not one of those people. Though you've made it very difficult for me to live up to what I believe, which is what God says to do, and that is to forgive. And so, sir, you are forgiven today. And it's interesting because it was at these words that for the very first time in the trial, Ridgeway broke down in tears. Loving our enemy is difficult to do. And some people make it much more difficult to do. But that is what God calls us to do. And it is what Jesus did. And it's what we are able to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I encourage you to go and do likewise and love your enemies. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are gracious enough to give us hard truths. Lord, that you are gracious enough not to let us continue to walk in our sin, but to bring our sin to light. Lord, that in your kindness you discipline us, in our kindness you reveal to us our sin. And now I pray, Lord, that we would not respond with ignoring this command, that we would not respond with discouragement at our failings, Lord, but that we would come to you in repentance and that we would recognize, God, that, that we have failed, but that we don't need to fail any longer, that, that, that we can walk in the power of the Spirit. We can, we can come to the Lord Jesus who gives us grace in our time of need and, and we can love our enemies and be a testament Lord, to, to what you have done for us, that you have loved us. And we pray, Lord, that you would, would make us a beacon and a light um, for your gospel in, in all areas of our lives and especially in, in, in this town of Smith Falls. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now, church, this is our um, custom on the first Sunday of the month. We come together to, to practice uh, the Lord's table. So uh, for those who are helping with serving, I'd like you to come up. And so we talked today about loving our enemies and um, the Lord's Supper. It, it's great that this is the passage that we've come to on this day because the Lord's Supper is a testament to that. You know, it's a testament to what Jesus came to do for what the Bible calls us children of wrath. It calls us dead in our trespasses and sins. It calls us 
uh, enemies of God. It calls us sinners. And yet, Jesus went and he endured the beatings. He uh, took the false accusations. He absorbed the blows of insults that were given against him. He did all of these things that we, he, he prayed for those who persecuted him. He did all of these things that we've talked about. And he did it all for his enemies. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing that um, first, it, it does bring us a little bit of sorrow. You know, knowing that uh, when we look at the, at the cup and we look at the bread, you know, knowing that our sin cost that. You know, our, our sin was, was so terrible that the perfect Son of God, the creator of the universe, had to come and die in order to redeem us from our sin. In a sense, that, that makes us sad. Because an innocent man died that day when he didn't deserve to die. We deserve to die. But then when we understand the love of God, when we understand what we read today, when we understand what Jesus has done, and that it was, it was a joy for him, that he willingly went to the cross on our behalf, that, that sorrow that we feel is, is soon overcome by the joy of salvation that is provided for us. That Jesus, Jesus loved us enough to come and to die. And he, and he, he loved the, the Lord God so much that he was obedient to God's will and that now he is seated there receiving all glory and honor and praise. And we get to be the beneficiaries of his wonderful work. And so... You may have failed in what we've talked about this morning. I know that I have failed. Um, but don't be discouraged. Come come to the cross. Come to, to the elements that Christ has, has given to you as a reminder of what he has done for you. And that even though you sin, even though you're convicted, you are not condemned. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so I want to read for you a prayer I'm not sure if any of you guys have this book. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a wonderful um, collection of Puritan prayers. And so I just want to read for you this prayer this morning. So you can can bow your head and, and close your eyes. It says, God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see them in thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. Thou hast prepared for me a And though I'm unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wonderful grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior while I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death. May I wonder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself as an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. O may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand. Take the bread, receive the cup, 
eat and drink and testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence and love, receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy, and delight. In the supper I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. Amen. May that, may that be the prayer of our hearts.